Hello and welcome to the VentureForth Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Mahavutivani. We'll be chatting with some of the most interesting founders, startups, and VCs about the experiences that led them to where they are today, what they're currently working on, as well as the journey ahead of them. On today's show, I'm excited to welcome Jake Gibson, co-founder and former COO of NerdWallet. NerdWallet gives consumers and small businesses clarity around all of life's financial decisions with free, accessible tools, research, and expert advice. Since departing, Jake has become an active angel investor in companies like Ernest, The Hustle, Captain 401, DataFox, Indonero, Meadow, and many more. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Jake, can you tell us a little about your background and everything leading up to NerdWallet? Yeah, sure. I guess I grew up in Atlanta, actually, with my NerdWallet co-founder, Tim. Um, we went to middle school and high school together. And then um, after high school, he went off to Stanford. I went to MIT, and I double majored in math and then also in management science at the Sloan School with a focus on finance. And so with that, I ended up going off to Wall Street after I graduated. I was part of the uh, it's kind of funny. There were pretty clear demarcations in the class cohorts in terms of what people decided to do for school. My class, since we all started school in 2000, we all wanted to be computer scientists and go off and work for tech companies and then the internet bubble burst. So when we graduated, we all ended up going off to consulting and banking instead because that was the thing to do. And it's funny because even just the class immediately after us, most of them ended up going off to the tech industry and starting companies like Dropbox. And so it was, I guess, kind of a sign of the times that we all ended up going off to, to Wall Street and stuff. But I worked on a, a fixed income derivatives prop trading desk for about four years until the financial crisis and then moved over to a uh, uh, an interest rate swaps market making desk and worked there for about another year or so. Until uh, I decided to leave and join up with Tim to work on NerdWallet. Working in banking can be pretty cushy. Why did you decide to leave? <laughs> um, well, I was about three years in when I decided that I um, it wasn't for me. I just I didn't love the culture. I didn't really feel like I was doing anything of value. I didn't feel like, you know I I went to MIT because I wanted to build things and be an engineer. Uh, and that ultimately was not what I ended up doing. And so there was always a little bit of cognitive dissonance there. Uh, it just took me a, a long time to convince myself to let go of the cushiness and actually move on. But the financial crisis helped with that. That was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, once the financial crisis happened and you know all your friends are getting laid off and stuff and everything's downsizing and uh, it's kind of the whole industry changed. Uh, it was a pretty good time to start thinking about what to do next. Right. And neither you or Tim have a explicitly technical background. How did you go about starting up in the beginning? Sure. So Tim and I are both, you're kind of like self-taught home programmers. Neither, nobody would ever hire us to do any programming. Um, <laughs> but we, we have, both of us had done a lot of it in our, in our youth in various ways. And Tim, I think actually even minored in computer science at Stanford. And while I didn't get a minor or anything, my uh, math degree involved a lot of programming, and so did my management science degree. And I did a bunch of side jobs while I was in college that involved programming. But what neither one of us had done was web programming. <laughs> and so, plus it had been six years since college, and so we both kind of had to relearn everything from scratch, or relearn programming from scratch and learn all about web programming from ground zero. 
which is kind of interesting. In our first couple iterations of Nerd Wallet, we basically like spaghetti coded everything from scratch. That that meant like we didn't realize that we could use frameworks like PHP frameworks and and at the time uh, Ruby on Rails frameworks and stuff like that to build our products. So we just built everything up from <laughs> we built everything from the ground up, and then even all of the JavaScript and stuff that we were using to to manipulate stuff on the page. We didn't know anything about any of the JavaScript JavaScript libraries or anything, and we're just hand coding all of it. It was pretty terrible. I think our I think our engineering team even today is still uh, still wading through a lot of the crap that we wrote ages ago <laughs> and kind of untangling it all. Yeah, Tim's got some great slides of early iterations of Nerd Wallet on his HustleCon presentation. NerdWallet famously bootstrapped its way to profitability. Was that a conscious decision, or did you try to raise money at the time? Uh, no, it was a conscious decision. Uh, well, I'd say there, there were kind of two different things going on. One was our business model was to kind of disrupt the existing financial information that was out there and, and, and the traditional ways that people searched for financial information online by offering them a lot more choice and unbiased information or is if you really start to dig into kind of financial advice online, it's it's very much lead gen. It's all lead gen focused, and most websites specifically optimize for revenue by kind of pitching products to people that are just not good for them. Whichever product's going to pay them the most money. So you'll go you'll go to websites like CreditCards.com or something and and look at their uh, low interest rate credit cards, and it's the same high interest rate credit card that they're advertising on their rewards pages. And so we wanted to build a tool where people could actually find the credit card that was best for them in a transparent way and and make it all very clear how we were calculating everything and, and make it all very quantitative and transparent. And so naturally, that meant that we were going to be monetizing a lot less than any of our competitors. And we didn't think that that would be a business model that most investors would want to buy into. I mean, at the same, I should also point out that like neither one of us was in the tech industry. We started the company in New York after both coming out of Wall Street. And so I don't even, we didn't even know anything about the VC industry or what people would or would not have invested in. But we assumed that people would not want to invest in a business model like that. We also, because we were bootstrapping, we went for the freest marketing channel we could, which was SEO. And we kind of got the sense that nobody would want to invest in a company that was being built on SEO. So that was kind of the one side of the coin uh, in terms of why we didn't raise money. But then as, as the company started to grow and we kind of proved out the business model, we started thinking about whether or not to, um, whether or not to raise money. But we kind of always came back to the same things. One was uh, we didn't know if, if anybody would actually be interested like, I was, uh, like at the beginning. But two was we were already profitable and didn't really have a great sense of what we would do with a lot more money. Like we had the conversation a lot of, uh, you know, we could if we could go out and raise five million dollars today, what would we spend it on? And we didn't have a good plan for that. It wasn't until a couple of years ago that we had like a really scalable operation that made sense to or that would have made sense to pump some money into. Right. Tim, actually, yeah, he talked a lot about how important SEO was in your growth. For instance, getting into Lifehack or had taken down the website, I think, when you guys were in Barbados. Yeah. <laughs> NerdWall is known for credit card recommendations. And there's a lot of personal decisions that go into to personal finance. And so there's a lot of different potential subjects that you could go after in the financial space to become domain experts in. How did, how did you go about choosing which verticals to go after? And then how did you become experts in those verticals so in terms of how we chose them 
I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more strategic thought behind that these days, but back in the back then, the goal was just to go after all of them, uh, and I think it's that's still the goal. I just don't know what the order of operations is and how how they prioritize everything. But we don't really think of it as like vertical. We don't anymore think of it as like verticals or just different products. We try to think in terms of kind of the financial life cycle of your average person. So if you really step back and think about kind of how people are confronted with financial decisions, it tends to happen at very specific points of their lives. So uh, like graduating from college, for example, maybe you get your first credit card or you get your first job and have to start thinking about health insurance and your 401k plan. And you have to start thinking about like consolidating your student loans and how you're going to pay them off and stuff like that. And then let's say you get married. So then you have to start thinking about uh, a lot more stuff like joint accounts and kind of saving for the future and potentially buying a house, which is its own set of decisions around mortgages and insurance. And so there's all these specific points in a person's life. You know, having kids is another big one where there's a lot of decisions that need to be made and a lot of those uh, and a large portion of those decisions are financial decisions. And so NerdWallet is trying to position itself to be there at every step of that life cycle and provide of transparency and provide help, I guess, in making the right decisions at every step of the way. Uh, and that that's ultimately going to mean touching kind of every financial services product out there. Right. You know, I guess that, that leads into my next question, which is, you know, there are other sites and apps that are providing financial advice and content targeting millennials. What are your thoughts on them and how will NerdWallet continue to be the leader? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good ones out there. You know, I, I talk to a lot of them on a regular basis. I think one thing that NerdWallet and you know our friends at Credit Karma and stuff like that have going for us is that we have established customer acquisition channels and kind of scalable, repeatable processes around that. Whereas anybody coming in to, to start up is going to have a hard time getting to that point. And I, th- I think that, you know, it's not enough to have a better product or better content. You also have to have a good idea about how you're going to acquire users. And, you know, that's something that NerdWallet and Credit Karma have already solved. And so it'll be interesting to see how a lot of these new companies figure that out over time. Is there any concern uh, about uh, the effects of Google changing their algorithm on traffic? Um, I mean, it's always something we think about, but one of kind of our founding principles when we, when Tim and I first started working on the company was not to try to outsmart Google. You know, we're, we're not building a company that's trying to game the system or trying to, um, I guess, trying to trick Google into ranking us higher than anybody else. We always thought that was a losing game. So we've always built our company and built our content in a way that we felt was kind of skating towards where the puck is going. Like, you know, we know that Google wants to get better and better at floating the best content that people that's actually going to answer people's questions so that people aren't like clicking through to a website and then going immediately back to Google and then clicking through to the second website and then going immediately back to Google because they're not finding what they want. Uh, we know that over time, Google's Google's algorithm is going to get better and better at finding the best content for people and, and helping to answer their questions in the best way possible. And so we just we don't try to game the system. Like I said, we just focus on creating the best content. And at least up until now, that's worked. Actually, the kind of one of the defining moments in NerdWallet's history was in 2011. I think it was, yeah, 2011, when Google started getting really aggressive about algorithm updates to eliminate search spam and uh, like link farms and stuff like that. All of these kind of black hat practices that that people have been using to kind of game the system. And that basically put us on the map because... Uh, we had already spent, you know, a year and a half, two years just focusing on creating great content. And a lot of our competitors got washed out 
And so we went from like no traffic to meaningful traffic kind of overnight when all those algorithm updates happened. And so we're just constantly trying to be good at what we do and hoping that as the algorithm changes, it should positively impact us, if anything. I mean, if you look at any other news site, I mean, at the end of the day, NerdWallet's primarily a, a media site where a financial publication as much as anything else. And so uh, those guys always tend to do pretty well in search, you know, like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or any of the money magazines, CNN Money. Um, they all tend to do pretty well in search because it's just a lot of good content that people want to link to and it answers people's questions and people want to read it. And so Google rewards them for that. And we, we hope to kind of stay in that realm as well. Right. We're about to inaugurate a new president. Do you think Trump will be good or bad for, for the company? It's really hard to say. I think the only thing that anybody really knows about Trump is that we have no idea what to expect. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things that he says, but we don't have any sense of how much of it he actually means. There's a, and then even of the stuff that he does mean, we have no idea what his likelihood is of actually trying to execute it. And then even if he does try to execute it, we have no idea what the likelihood is that it'll actually get done. So it's very hard to judge. The only thing that I'm certain of over the next four years is there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. Right. Definitely. You ultimately decided to leave NerdWallet a few years ago. What led to that decision? Um, I had kids <laughs> was, was a big part of it. Uh, I had, um, so my wife and I gave birth to twins just over three years ago and it was kind of a stars aligning moment where, you know, Tim and I had already previously started looking into bringing more executive leadership into the company. We knew that we had a, a nice growth path ahead of us if we could execute on it. And we knew that that was going to require a hiring a lot of people that we weren't qualified to manage and be kind of managing the complexities of you know a multi-hundred person organization, which neither one of us felt particularly qualified to do either. And so we we started looking for more executive talent to, to come in. And the first one we started looking for and the first one we ended up hiring was a new COO. And so my title at the time was COO, although that's a COO in startup parlance, which just means I was the other founder. Uh, but so we hired a new COO. He was going to take my title and there was a question of what I was going to do next. At the same time, my wife was pregnant. And so ultimately what I decided to do was take a year off and stay home with the kids. And so the day that Dan started at NerdWallet, I stepped down. So I spent that first year just at home with the kids. And then once that year was over and I decided to start working again, I ultimately decided I didn't want to jump back into a startup or do anything do anything with that kind of hours or even anything particular that was full time at that point because I wanted to be able, I wanted to have the flexibility to stay home with my kids whenever I wanted to. Awesome. And so you've also done a little bit of angel investing in the meantime, and you've done quite a bit of a number of deals to date. What have you learned from, you know, your first deal to your last and, and what's really stuck out from, you know, a successful founder? The fun thing about angel investing is you kind of learn something every day. And I would say that it's, it, there's not like one, two or three things that particularly stand out as like mega learnings that I've picked up along the way, but just a million micro learnings that kind of add up to kind of a picture of the world. One of the things that's been kind of most fascinating for me as an angel investor was just kind of learning how the investment world works and particularly like learning a lot about VC business models. And I think that's something that founders don't, don't think about enough. Like when you go out to raise money, even if you're just raising money from friends and family or angel investors and you haven't started talking to VCs yet, you still have to, in the back of your mind, think about what your future fundraising path is going to look like and 
that involves understanding how VCs make decisions, which ultimately involves understanding how venture capital works as a business model. Because there's plenty of great companies out there that are going to try to raise money and they're not going to be able to because it just doesn't fit the VC model in some way. And I think there's a lot of founders out there, too many founders out there that just don't understand that. And so it's been pretty interesting from my perspective to to kind of learn all of that as I went along as well, because it does also impact your your investing strategy as an angel. Actually, I think uh, Elizabeth Yen uh, just wrote a great blog post specifically about this. Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely link it in the show notes. Since then, you are now an entrepreneur in residence at 500 Startups. And I've heard the role defined in, in many ways. And so I think there's some confusion about what the role really entitles. Can you share what it means to be an EIR at 500 Startups? Yeah, I, I can tell you what it means for me. So, <laughs> EIR is kind of one of those vague terms that gets bandied about in the investing world. Every VC firm has a different different model for it. And sometimes it's executive in residence, sometimes it's entrepreneur in residence. Uh, for a lot, like traditionally, it would mean somebody who is working out of a VC's office, but their primary goal is to start a new company. And then the VC would potentially support that company. And it's usually an entrepreneur that the firm has already backed in the past or something like that. And I believe there are entrepreneurs in residence at 500 who have every intention of starting a new company. In my case, it's just, it's the title that you get when you're not a partner. <laughs> so uh, all that really means is that I, I'm part-time at 500. I spend two days a week there and I'm focused solely on the fintech fund. So I source companies, vet companies, and mentor companies in the fintech track in the San Francisco Accelerator. And so it sounds like you want to transition from angel investor to VC or perhaps do both. Um, I haven't decided. So I, I, the way that I look at it, there's there's a spectrum uh, where on one end, it's like you're totally self-contained and all you do is angel invest. And then on the other end, you know, there's working for a larger VC firm. And then kind of in between, there's raising your own small fund, there's angel list, there's a variety of other ways, you know, in EIR at 500, where I'm kind of a part-time VC in some ways. And there's a lot of stuff in, inside that spectrum. And at the moment, I, I don't really have a gun to my head to have to decide uh, which one I want to kind of pursue more full-time over the long term. So I'm exploring every avenue I can. And the way that I think about it is I'm trying to kind of optimize my service area of opportunity. I spend all my time meeting new uh, meeting new companies, meeting founders, as well as meeting investors, both angel and VC, and uh, just trying to build the network as much as possible, be as helpful as possible, invest in a bunch of companies, uh, either on my own or for some other vehicle like 500, and just learn as much as I can along the way and hope that some opportunity comes along that seems too good for me to turn down. Absolutely. And you mentioned running the fintech program there. Uh, for companies who are interested in joining 500 startups, what do you look for in a potential cohort member? You know, it, it, it varies. So Sheil is actually the one who runs the, the fintech fund, and, and I'm just kind of helping, helping him and Mike Siegel out there. But fintech is a very broad term. So uh, in, in Silicon Valley, we kind of treat it as its own industry, but financial services is a lot of different industries. You know, there's insurance, there's lending, there's banking, there's all kinds of like B2B financial services. Uh, then you have kind of the underbanked or, or unbanked worlds with it's like payday loans and, and stuff like that. And so there's, there's a, there's a very broad 
uh, or a lot of different industries that kind of get rolled up into this fintech nomenclature. And so what we look for in different companies really depends on what kind of company it is. So, you know, if you're just kind of a, well, I guess what I should say is like in fintech is also kind of a weird beast where it tends to, it's highly regulated. It tends to take a little bit more money to get a company started uh, than it would for just kind of a regular consumer web app or something. And so we have to look at companies a little bit differently. And then even within that, some companies are harder than others. So, you know, we'll, uh, we had a lot of insurance companies in our last batch, and these are companies that don't have a product live in the market yet. They may or may not have their insurance partnerships in place. They might have already raised a bunch of money to kind of clear the regulatory hurdles and stuff. And so that's going to be very different from, you know, if you're just a, or I shouldn't say just, but if you're uh, an iPhone app that helps people save money, you know, we'd, we'd kind of expect to see a little bit more proof, I would think, because that company shouldn't take as long to get off the ground. Right. And, and so you've had tons of experience in the space. Are there certain trends that you're most excited about or see the future of fintech becoming? Yeah, you know, uh, one of, I guess, one way to think about the companies that we get most excited about at 500 is fintech for the rest of us. And so I think that uh, kind of the democratization of financial services is hopefully going to be a big trend that I'd like to see really play out. So we talked about those, uh, or I mentioned the, the kind of payday loans and all these other products for the unbanked and the underbanked. That whole world is just a total disaster right now. And it's, it's terrible for the end consumer. And so I think that technology has a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity for technology to kind of disrupt that space and bring access to credit and stuff like that to, to those people and to, I guess, kind of rehabilitate them from a financial sense and bring them into the more traditional banking system. And so I think that's pretty interesting. And then also, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, you know, there's all these financial services that are basically only available to the super rich, uh, but could be very beneficial to the middle class. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity in technology to take what would normally be uh, something that only the, the rich would be able to take advantage of and, and make it accessible to the middle class to help them to help them save money. Definitely. Well, I'd like to kind of transition into our sort of get to know you quick fire round here and cap that off with an opportunity for you to plug anything that you like. Sure. Um, to start, uh, what's your favorite book? Oh, man. <laughs> you know, I, I read constantly. And so it's kind of hard for me to, uh, I would say my most recent favorite book is the one that's the most top of mind for me, I would say is probably Seven Eves. It's a, uh, I think it was a Bill Gates recommendation last year or earlier this or uh, early last year or something like that. But um, it's basically the the plot of this book is, and I'm not going to be giving any spoilers away here. The the moon gets blown up Whoa. in the first couple sentences of the book, <laughs> and uh, basically the human we have to figure out how to save the human race because it's going to be an apocalyptic scenario for the Earth. And so what's really interesting is, I mean, it's a great story. It's, it's Neil Stevenson, I think. It's, it's a great sci-fi story just by itself, but it's also very deep technically. So you actually, you learn a lot about the challenges of surviving in space, you know, kind of like The Martian, uh, where there was a lot of, more so in the book than in the movie, but there was a lot of science in the book about what it's like to survive on Mars. Uh, and it gets pretty deep technically. Seven Eves is, you know, it's like that on steroids uh, about trying to survive in space so that you can rebuild the human race. That is very, very interesting. Colonization and all this other stuff. And it's super interesting. And I learned more about 
like uh, orbital mechanics and uh, you know space propulsion and genetics and all these other things just from reading this book than uh, than I'd learned in my entire life up until then. So, and I'm uh, I'm an amateur space nerd, so that was a fantastic kind of intro to a lot of these topics for me without diving too deep into right. the science. That's fascinating. Um, I gotta ask, what credit cards do you use? The Chase Sapphire Reserve, obviously. <laughs> um, <that's, laughs> it's the only credit card that matters right now. I've always been pretty loyal to the Starwood credit card, but ever since um, ever since Chase rolled out that Reserve card, I've, I've been using it more and more and using the SPG card less and less. Especially if you travel, I imagine. Yeah, so the Starwood card was always really good for that because my wife and I didn't pay for a hotel for you know, probably five or six years because we would just use points. But now the, the benefits from the reserve card are, are so much better and definitely better if you, if you travel. Awesome. It looks like the next card I'll be getting unless the uh, new Amazon chase card, uh, the 5% one ends up uh, being better. Yeah. Might- I imagine, uh, I, I know a website you could use to, to compare the two. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that you and Tim had to teach yourselves a lot to, to originally build nerd wallet. What's the last thing that you taught yourself to do? Oh, man. Other than (laughs) raising kids, um, which has been just a series of having to learn new things. uh, I did did a bit more programming a couple of years ago when I was sitting at home with my kids and was a little bit bored. I can't even remember now what specifically I was working on. I was doing a lot of algorithmic stuff, not so much web programming. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, I haven't spent much time teaching myself really concrete skills i just more read for the sake of theory at the end of a long day it sounds like you're super busy all day especially now with uh with twins uh (laughs) (laughs) and so you know you must have very little free time at the end of that long day how do you like to relax watching like binge watching tv (laughs) do you have a do you have a guilty pleasure that uh that you can share oh man i i've you know (laughs) i a, a year or so ago, I watched all nine seasons and both uh, movies of the uh, X-Files series. Wow. I imagine uh, when the kids are napping, that might be a good way to find some free time for yourself. Yeah. yeah it took quite a while to get through all of it because this was also back when episodes or seasons were 24 episodes oh, on funny. average. So oh, okay, 10. Yeah, it took, a, it took a while, but it was worth it. What do you collect, if anything, and why? I don't like to collect things. I actually, I'd spend more time throwing things away than collecting things. I'm, I'm <laughs> constantly trying to throw my wife's stuff away too, and she won't let me. <laughs> That's awesome. What is the hardest thing you've ever done? Oh, I mean, well, the, the, the kids are the obvious answer, but <laughs> I wanted to go with something a little bit lighter. I ran a uh, 50K a couple of years ago. Whoa. Actually, over the course of like six months, I ran a trail marathon and a handful of races that were close to marathon distance on on uh, hiking trails, and then capped it all off with a December 50K, which isn't actually that much longer than a marathon, but it's nice because I get to call it an ultra marathon. So <laughs> that's amazing. And finally, what apps can't you live without? I'm kind of boring in this sense, so I spend 90% of my time on email. Um, what can I live without? Let's Perhaps see here. Uh, one in the portfolio. I'm looking at my phone here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I mean, Meadow, but that's not an app. That's a website. Right. <laughs> uh, 
constantly going through and erasing apps too. I don't even collect apps. Right. Let's say the what I mean, I'm addicted to to reading and news. So I've got the Financial Times app, the Bloomberg app, the Kindle app, Nuzzle, Pocket. <laughs> so when I'm not in email, I'm probably in one of those apps. Sam uh, Clark probably I, needs to release one for the hustle soon. Yeah. Yeah. I can't I can't wait for them to do that. Yeah. And then I used to spend a bunch of time on Facebook, and I was pretty active on Twitter, but the election cycle kind of burned me off on that, yeah, so burned me out that. on that, so I haven't been on there in a while. Well, I'd love to give you the floor, or the mic in this case, to plug anything that you like. Yeah, I'm not much of a self-promoter <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, can, I can just say, hey, if you're looking for a credit card, go check out NerdWallet, but... Uh, I don't know how much <laughs> that's really going to move the needle. So <laughs> Right. Well, uh, in any case, I, I really enjoyed speaking with you today and actually getting to know you over the last year and a half or two years now, I guess. It's been fascinating watching NerdWallet grow into the, the giant that it is today. And so it's so influential. And I know I, I use it all the time. So uh, thank it's you so much for your time. Yeah, definitely. This has been Venture Forth with Jake Gibson and we are looking forward to sharing your story. All right. Thanks, Joe. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to the VentureForth podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can also follow at VentureForthPod on Twitter for our latest updates. As always, I'm your host, Joe Mahavutivani, and thank you for listening to the VentureForth podcast.